This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Hi, everybody. This is Leonard DiLorenzo, host of Church Life Today. Before we get to today's episode, just a quick word from me to you. We just passed our second anniversary of this show, and I wanted to say thanks. Thanks for listening, and thanks for all the great feedback you've sent our way in the past two years. If you like what you hear in our conversations with pastoral leaders and scholars, please pass our episodes along to others. Everything's available online at RedeemerRadio.com churchlife or on SoundCloud at Church Life Today. And if you live in an area where your local Catholic radio station does not carry our show, call your station, send them an email, ask them to take us on. Now let's get to today's show. This is Leonard DiLorenzo for Church Life Today and Redeemer Radio, a production of the McGrath Institute for Church Life. On our episode today, I welcome in a medical doctor and a professor of bioethics to talk about the developing situation surrounding the coronavirus. My guests are Dr. Christian Collier, Assistant Professor of Internal Medicine at the University of Michigan, and Professor Charlie Camosi, Associate Professor of Bioethics in the Department of Theology at Fordham University. Our conversation is taking place on Friday, March 13th, 2020. Christian Collier, Charlie Camosi, welcome to the show. Hi, Lenny. So, Dr. Collier, I'd like to start with a question for you. As a medical doctor, what are the preparations like for your hospital, for you personally, in anticipation of what could be a potentially rapid increase of coronavirus infections? Sure. So, thanks for having me back on, Lenny. So, I just wanted to start with maybe some background Mm -hmm. so everyone's up to date on the basics, if you don't mind. Um, So we are in the midst of a pandemic caused by a type of virus called a coronavirus. Coronaviruses are a group of viruses. They can infect both animals and people and cause illnesses of the respiratory tract. And they're named for the spikes that protrude from their surfaces, resembling a crown or the sun's corona. At least four types of coronaviruses cause very mild infections every year, like the common cold. And most people probably get infected with one or more of these viruses at some point over their lives. But this coronavirus we are facing is an altogether new or novel strain that humans haven't faced before. This is bad because there is no existing herd immunity and every infection is new and has the potential to cause serious disease in a larger group of people. As your listeners may know, we have faced serious coronaviruses before. 2003, I believe, in China, the severe acute respiratory syndrome or SARS went around and killed hundreds of people before it was contained. And the MERS virus was first reported in Saudi Arabia in 2012-ish, also was a coronavirus. This new virus we are facing has been named SARS-CoV-2 and the disease disease it causes is called COVID-19. So the medical community is working tirelessly to prepare. In medicine, there's an adage where we hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. And that's what we're doing. We are updating our protocols daily in both our inpatient and outpatient settings and doing what we can to anticipate the needs of our patients, students, trainees, and staff. So some of the practical things that we're doing for our patients is we're trying to anticipate canceling elective surgeries and moving non-essential visits in the outpatient setting off-site and moving them and being able to deliver health in new ways for people that don't need to physically come in through telemedicine, video visits, that kind of thing. And I just want to be really clear that the lay people are also and should be also part of these efforts. So your listeners are part of these efforts and can help us. Many of your listeners have heard the term flatten the curve with this pandemic. And I just want to take a minute to emphasize this. Please. So there's an estimate going around that like 40 to 70% of U.S. Americans will eventually be affected with the virus. 
And so some of your listeners may think, well, if that's the case, why would we delay the inevitable? And many may think they should, shouldn't try to get infected, avoid getting infected because it's inevitable anyway. And they think they should just get it over with now. But the problem is if everyone gets sick now, on top of the regular serious medical care that hospitals handle every day, the healthcare system just will be overloaded and not be able to give folks the care that they need. So please, let's try to flatten the curve and spread out the time that these cases can happen to give us some time. Please give us time. Time, hopefully, to get a vaccine or a medication for widespread use and time to spread out the use of resources and get more equipment needed, et cetera. And people can do that part by staying home, washing their hands, and do what you can otherwise to not need medical care for other reasons, like driving safely, getting your flu shot, et cetera. And for me, practically, what I've been doing for myself as a healthcare provider is also trying to take care of myself, which is difficult when you're busy and stressed mm-hmm. and overworked. But I have elderly parents and my in-laws, like I've told them, like not to leave their house and helping them get their food and making sure they have their medications and people that support healthcare providers and spouses, parents, etc. Making sure that your loved healthcare provider is getting their rest and healthy food if they can, because we're in this for really for the long haul here. Now, Professor Charlie Camosi, like the rest of us, you've been paying attention to how this outbreak has been becoming more urgent. But I've noticed you're also watching how commentators and sometimes even experts are talking about this outbreak. So what are some of the key ethical issues you've been worried about or paying attention to in the course of this situation and looking ahead to what is to come? Well, I kind of cut my ethical teeth thinking about questions surrounding distribution of resources in a situation where we don't have enough of them. Mm-hmm. My first book was titled Too Expensive to Treat? Question mark. And we're going to be in that situation very shortly. Italy is already there. China has been there. South Korea in some ways has been there. But we have about, according to Ezekiel Emanuel, who just published this in the New York Times this morning, about 68,000 intensive care unit beds in this country and fewer fewer than 100,000 ventilators. The best estimates are that 960,000 people are going to require hospitalization from the novel coronavirus. So we're just going to be overwhelmed and we're going to have to make some very tough decisions. And I really admire healthcare providers like Dr. Collier who are on the front lines of thinking about not only how to do it, but then doing it herself. I mean, this is just a few public servants. But one thing that has disturbed me, and you and I have talked about, is some of the discussions about how to do this are unjust and frankly ageist, right? So the, I mean, it's one thing to say that older people are less likely to survive, which is true. But it's another thing to say that all things being equal, younger people ought to survive before old people survive, which is Mm -hmm. the kind of thing I'm hearing not only just in the chatter, like on the internet, but also from like the protocols that the Italians are putting out there talking about like, well, we got to maximize the number of quality life years added by intervention. Sometimes in the literature that's called quaily. And that's just not at all, especially how Christians <laughs> think about this, right? We're not utilitarians. We're not just trying to maximize quality adjusted life years, whatever that might mean. We're here to serve the most vulnerable. And while that's complicated and in some cases so complicated, it's tough to know what to do. One thing I think we ought to avoid doing is being ageist and just simply saying, well, you know, people in their 80s, they're just simply not as worth saving as people who are in their 30s or 40s. Mm. So this was brought Charlie, up. Can I just, can I ask, no, please sorry, do. Can I ask you a question do. about that? Just, just to sort of clarify. So I totally agree in what you're saying in terms of the principles of that equal value in terms of the life, the value of the life of the older person and the younger person. But from a medical perspective, thinking about practically about older people, and um, oftentimes they have more comorbid disease and let's say, let's say lung disease, et cetera, and have uh, sometimes a more prolonged sort of stay in an ICU or on a ventilator or such. 
Um, can you comment on that, how that may play into our decision-making? It's not just age in terms of we value the life less or so. It's really the, the, the combination of factors that come into play when deciding when and how to use mechanical ventilation, for example, and, and sort of thinking about is someone likely to come off the ventilator based on their prognosis and their underlying disease. But also, if we if we come down to a situation where there are limited you know, mechanical ventilators and, and use of them is, is, is rationed in some way, thinking about even the stay, could, could, a younger, could two younger people be on a ventilator in the time that one older person was on? So, could you comment on that at all? Sure. How you sure. think about that? Yeah. So, I'm relying on a translation of the Italian from an Atlantic editor who is tweeting about this, but his translation of the Italian from his reporting from Italy, I guess, from their protocols say, it may be necessary to establish an age limit for access to intensive care. This is not a value judgment, but a way to provide extremely scarce resources to those who have the highest likelihood of survival, which Dr. Collier, I understand you to be talking about. But then there's an and here, which says, Mm -hmm. and could enjoy the largest number of life years saved. Mm -hmm. So the Italian protocol is pretty clear. It is in establishing an age limit for access. It is invoking highest likelihood of survival. But then it is, I mean, very clearly, at least if this translation is correct, saying, and could enjoy the largest number of life years saved which is the first one I'm totally on board with and I agree 100% with. It's it's the second one that that I'm trying to point to. And just, I mean, you have obviously the clinical experience here, but I can imagine a scenario, which isn't maybe too far-fetched, where a 50-year-old person who's infected has a number of core comorbidities and maybe is a smoker, mm-hmm. whereas a 75-year-old marathon runner is also in the running for the, you know, a, a ventilator. We, we we simply wouldn't say, well, the 75-year-old doesn't get it and the younger person get it in that example, right? I mean, we would say, who is more likely to be able to benefit from mm-hmm. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today and Redeemer Radio. My guests are Dr. Kristen Collier, Assistant Professor of Internal Medicine at the University of Michigan, and Professor Charlie Camosi, Associate Professor of Bioethics in the Department of Theology at Fordham University. And since listeners were discussing a developing situation on the coronavirus outbreak, I want to let you know that this episode was recorded on Friday, March 13th, 2020. Of course, we're talking on March thir- Friday the 13th, but that's just the way it is. So, um, yeah, so if we can stay with this for just a moment following that Atlantic article that you were pointing to, Charlie, but these directives or suggestions that are being given to Italian doctors about how to make these decisions about who gets treatment and who doesn't, when, as you were mentioning, the resources, there's a scarcity of resources, in particular, let's say, respirators or ventilators. Dr. Collier, so if you're if you're in a situation like this, and we don't have to bring it just down to this you know, one type of situation, but in these kinds of situations where there's limited resources and an incredible amount of need, number of patients, what kind of criteria do you as a medical doctor who's making those decisions, what do you appeal to? Well, first of all, I'm happy to say that I'm not an ICU doctor mm-hmm. and hopefully will not be in the situation where we are faced with this. But if we are, you know, we have our, I was talking to someone this morning who's actually overseeing some of these protocols. And, you know, we developed these protocols for our hospital back during the H1N1 mm-hmm. um, epidemic about the just allocation of resources if resources were to become limited. And thank goodness we didn't have to 
use them, but they may very well come into play here and they're being looked at and revised again. Like with every case you take and the way that these cases would be handled, right, would be on a case-by-case basis, um, using the best judgment and the best available data we have at the time. We know just from numbers and from some of the work that we've done about there are some predictors of people who will never come off a ventilator because of serious advanced lung disease on top of what their imaging looks like and their clinical situation. Um, But you take every case um, on a case-by-case basis, and then we would hope and expect that that would be done here. And we're not just following protocol like a machine, but we're taking into account all the factors um, at hand with each person, and that there's a panel of people that are involved in the decision-making that includes multiple professionals from nursing and respiratory and pulmonary care and medicine, et cetera. So it's going to really, hopefully we're not tested in this way, but if it is, I mean, I think we have a protocol that's going to be loaded in the best of our ability as people with sort of limited information, but with the best information we have at the time. Yeah. I suppose for either of you or both of you, another question I would have is what kind of training is involved for medical professionals in terms of the ethics of all of this? So how are doctors and nurses prepared in advance to make these really critical decisions and perhaps not be blinded by various biases that might just be in circulation? I mean, I'll start uh, answering that question. I mean, I think, you know, these discussions are best had ahead of time. So people who are going to be involved in these decisions frontline are having these discussions right now as we speak to sort of think through cases sort of in a objective way. And then come when it comes to the real situation, hopefully we've had some practice sort of thinking about the issues at hand, the medical issues and social issues, et cetera, ethical issues. All of our medical students have some foundational ethics training. And there are some people who are very invested in this topic and they have an ethics pathway of excellence here at the medical school where the students can um, engage. And we have an ethics committee. Every encounter is an ethical encounter. So it's expected that all physicians have some baseline ethical training. But these conversations are being had by the teams right now in anticipation of what happens, of how we'll decide. And our medical training is quite robust, obviously, to be able to sort of determine like one of the key tasks of a physician, which I tell my students really early is, you know, can you differentiate sick from not sick? You know, can you pull the curtain back when there's like 30 patients and just by looking at people be like, are they sick or not? And that sort of takes into account physical exam stuff and vital signs, that kind of thing. And to be able to triage, right, which is like one of the key sort of skills of a physician, especially in times like this, to be able to do that well. Mistakes will be made. We're not perfect people. But these conversations and um, exercises are being had now when we're tested. That's going to be, if it comes to that, quite unfortunate because it's going to be um, a situation where definitely mistakes are made, but we are always trying to do our best to make sure that we make the best decision for each patient with a consulting team of folks um, so we can do right by the greatest number of folks at on hand. Charlie, would you like to weigh in on that in terms of the, the ethical training? Yeah, I'd, I'd mentioned that where Dr. Collier is working at the University of Michigan is one of the world leaders when it comes to those kinds of protocols and educational opportunities for their staff and students. And it's not necessarily that way in many other places. So in fact, my experience is that a lot of other not as world-class facilities, there's a kind of general sense that somehow medicine or healthcare training can give you ethical expertise along with it. And that's just not true. In fact, it's definitely, definitely, definitely not true. And one thing that often happens, at least again, in my experience through that is the kind of absorbing of a kind of crude utilitarianism that it kind of permeates for lack of a better way of saying it, the kind of the academy or the sciences or medicine more broadly. And that's where we get, I think, the kind of slouch towards Qualey's, you know, quality adjusted life years rather than thinking more carefully. And I would argue regard to justice questions first, as opposed to maximizing life years. I mean, one, one thing that I put out there on Twitter is one of my responses to this was, I mean, there are societies, of course, who have very different 
non-utilitarian approaches to this who will say we ought to prioritize all things being equal older people our elders because mm-hmm. that's what we do mm-hmm. uh, we don't have a youth a youth-centered life years adjusted approach we have a, a justice-centered approach to those who who paved the way for us who are the reason we're here that's that's just not the culture we're in so i think the the more we can be aware that these are ethical issues issues of value issues of value that come from certain kinds of traditions and cultures the better off we'll be in being you know honest about what exactly is going on when we're making these judgments how is this that kind of conversation how does it move from say a catholic perspective where it might not solely be generated but maybe generated to bridge over into a, a broader, more public kind of conversation because you're not just talking about Christian doctors ought to do this or Catholic doctors ought to do this. We're talking about the medical community and our society in general. Well, my, my very strong sense of things is that there's really no easy way to talk about that problem or trying to solve that problem because of the radical moral diversity we have mm. in our pluralistic culture. Frankly, I think we should expect a Jewish hospital or a secular hospital or a Catholic hospital to come to different conclusions about how to handle these problems because different understandings of the good are animating their reason for being mm-hmm. and and why they're doing what they're doing. So I don't, I mean, my, I used to think, you know, in my earlier days of studying ethics that we could, you know, come to some sort of natural law baseline and say, well, this is just the way it ought to be. But the more I study ethics and the more that I pose to different ways of doing it, the less confidence I have about that. Yeah. First principles really went out in the end, it seems. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today on Redeemer Radio. My guests are Dr. Christian Collier, Assistant Professor of Internal Medicine at the University of Michigan, and Professor Charlie Camosi, Associate Professor of Bioethics in the Department of Theology at Fordham University. We're recording this conversation on Friday, March 13th, 2020. How do either of you see this as maybe a test for us as a society for Maybe going back to where you were just talking about, Charlie, like what is it that we fundamentally value in a in a pluralistic situation, but as a society as a whole? Well, I, I think we're we've never, at least in certainly my lifetime, I think in my parents' lifetime, we experienced anything remotely like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, if the numbers that I'm hearing about are correct, we are going to have hundreds of thousands dead as a result of this. We're going to have the kinds of decisions made about who gets what that we've been discussing for the last 20, 25 minutes explicitly made out in the open in ways we never have done before. And so I think we're really going to have, we are going to be faced with questions that get to the fundamentals of what we believe to be true. And I, I'm i not one to predict what's going to happen in, with regard to such massive questions like that, but there's no there's no there's no outcome other than a fundamentally changed culture as a result of what's about to to come our way and how that's going to play out I'm not totally sure I think uh, I'll finish with this the the thing that we have seen in other socially changing dramatically socially changing events like 9/11 is there's a, there is a moment at first anyway where there's goodwill and people come together and that's what I hope we can take advantage of and do less sniping and hashtagging and othering and more like, okay, there's there's an opportunity here where we all want to try to work together. Can we find some overlapping consensus anyway toward working towards solving this and, and maybe also working so it doesn't happen again or at least can be mitigated better? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. I think it's going to be if, unfortunately, if the numbers are even close to what people are predicting in terms of the death that we'll see, this is a... Um, 
going to be an experience with death that I think a lot of Western Americans are, are not used to experiencing. I mean, I, I think it sounds maybe naive, but I think even in 2020, I think people are going to be shocked to see that medicine doesn't have the ability to conquer death. Death will come to some as a result of this virus, and it already has. And I think we're going to be reminded that there are limits to our technology and that many of us have made an idol out of modern day medicine, and that will be challenged. And when our idols come down, that can be very painful. But when that happens, it's a time for us to be reoriented to who our true savior is, who has come and conquer death once and for all and whom we need to place our hope. Um, so I, I suspect that I think we are going to be hopefully in a, in a good way, you know, with the growth that can come out of this, have a realization of the limits of, of medicine. I think we're going to also, I think we are going to see how brave our fellow brothers and sisters are with selfless acts of love and charity. And I've seen it already with the folks here at the hospital. We have this new Ricky, which is this respiratory ICU that's being opened on this uh, floor of the hospital. And they asked the home care division, like for volunteers to staff it. And I think there were like about like 30 folks that they asked and um, they were expecting, you know, maybe to have to really beg and plead, but like 22 of the 30 said that they would and the people wow. that didn't um, either had like reasons medically that they couldn't because of immunocompromise or they just didn't feel like their ICU skills were sharp enough because they do more of outpatient time. That's incredible. But I think when we think about the, the time alone, too, I think about people who are being quarantined and isolated. I think a lot of people may become somewhat uncomfortable with a lot of time on their hands. And we're really prone, I think, to fill that time sometimes with distraction and entertainment. But there is a room for growth here for all of us. I think it was Arnold Toynbee, who was a British historian, that said, confronted by death without belief, modern man has deliberately been clipping his spiritual wings. Mm. And I think if we think about, you know, maybe we have some time to ponder death um, in a way that can be productive, because in medical circles, and especially in some of the folks I hang out with, you know, death has really become sort of the ultimate obscenity. And even the word has become almost unmentionable, like it's almost almost un-American, right? right? And I think um, because, you know, suffering and death represents sort of this interruption of our life, um, it really implies a loss of control. And this is why I think most of us, you feel this sense of anxiety in like the hallways and in the supermarket. This is like an existential crisis that we're being faced with. But I think we can, we can maybe learn from this. And I think when I also think about the, the concept even of the, the suffering that we'll see see um, a lot of people suffer and thank God not die, but the suffering that we'll see to have this this reclaiming of this narrative even around what redemptive suffering can look like with our Christian brothers and sisters can be an opportunity for deep personal communion with God who suffers with and on behalf of his creation. What do you think is, either of you, the role of Christian witness in a time such as this? Yeah, I just one thing I have to say on that is, you know, when we think about the Greek word, root for the word compassion is pashko, which means to suffer. I think the compassionate one suffers with the other person and the willingness to sort of bear the distress of others should be central to the role of the healer in this encounter when we tend to our sick patients or our sick family members. And so I think to expect suffering and the effort when we care for and bring healing to others, I think this is the path that we walk on as a witness to Jesus Christ. And it's the crucified Christ who really is the model for all Christian healing and for all would-be Christian healers. And when I say healers, I don't mean people who are in the medical profession. I'm talking about people who are going to provide healing for those that need it in the homes and the nursing homes in outpatient facilities and in the streets, et cetera. Charlie, how about... One of the major yeah. outcomes besides death that is on the way as a result of this is that a society that's already lonely is going to get dramatically lonelier and... This is another thing I think Christians can do with courage is visit people, be with people, be in their space, five feet away, of course, but um, <laughs> talk, 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 engage, love, bring dishes, bring drinks, bring themselves. And to pick up on Dr. Collier's point about how Christians have dealt with these things in the past, there's some good 
early church work, historical work on the early church that suggests that one of the major reasons for Christianity's growth, even before the Edict of Milan, was due to how Christians responded to plagues and healthcare disasters of the day. And they were known for standing firm and being around and being in the spaces of people who were suffering. And I think there's, I know this is going to be an opportunity for us to live up to that best part of our history again at this moment. I, th- I think it was a quote from Augustine who said, who described the triune God as within the triune God, there's love given, love received, and love shared. And I've been thinking about that a lot lately with this pandemic. So some of us will be called to be patient. Some of us will be called to care for them. Some of us will be giving love and some of us will be receiving it some of, sometimes both at the same time. So I think about this call to neighborly love and it will challenge us to reconsider the modern way in which we've previously used sort of technology and such to be in touch. And I think about this call being embodied in the people who see Christ and both the patient and the caregiver um, in, in the way that we can witness to, to the world about what embodied love looks like in this way. We're, we've got just a couple minutes left, so maybe I can just ask each of you at the end is, what would you hope that all of us either try and keep in mind, uh, try to practice, try to prioritize in these weeks and months to come? I guess I'd just say that God is here with us and to be aware of that, hyper aware of that, maybe aware of that more than any other times when we're kind of doing our thing, going about our lives. Um, it's going to be very easy to lose track of that now and to focus on things that might even hide the fact that God is with us. But St. John Paul II's great exhortation to us was to be not afraid. And and our our hope and our, our lack of fear comes from the fact that we know God is with us. Mm. I, I, I totally agree with that. I think, you know, for Christians, stuff is not natural or normal. It's not the way that things are meant to be. Christianity proclaims it really to be abnormal, and therefore it's truly horrible. But, you know, we don't we don't grieve as those who have no hope. God became a human person and suffered and died to destroy the power of death and transform the nature of suffering. And so whenever I think about my fears around this whole thing, the fear of me bringing this virus home to my family, and, um, you know, I think the, the fears that my co-workers who I've basically lived with in this hospital and trained with for almost two decades, and I know some of them will be lost. I think my prayer is not my will, but your will be done, Lord. And I I think about that in Christ, in in Christ, suffering isn't removed, but it's transformed into victory. And we as Christians have hope in Jesus Christ. And I think God has given us the son. Do we trust and believe in him or not? And so I think it's going to take a lot of, and we know that, but a lot of reminding and and prayer for each other and discussion of where where our hope really should be placed here. That's a beautiful place to end. So I'll end then with thanking both of you, Dr. Collier, Professor Kamosi, for joining us today. Thank you so much, Lenny. Thank you. And to all our listeners, I'd encourage you, if you can, to follow both of them on Twitter, of all things. There's uh, just invaluable insights <laughs> that they're – I'm telling you, this is where I get a lot of it – invaluable insights that they're uh, sharing and links to both their own peerless writings and to other things that we should be paying attention to. And since we have to translate this now from audio to writing, Dr. Christian Collier, her first name is spelled with a K, mm-hmm. and Professor Charlie Camosi, his last name is spelled C-A-M-O-S-Y. So thanks to all of you for joining us on Church Life Today. Talk to you next time. This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners.
Does debt have you down? Are you worried about your credit cards, your mortgage, or keeping your car? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union can help. Our people are trained to be financial physicians. They can give you a checkup, help you to heal, and then stay healthy. Don't be embarrassed. It's why we exist. When your body is sick, you go to see a doctor. When your finances are sick, you go to see the friendly folks at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits?